Hello everyone, Brian here. If you'd like to support the Head Games Podcast, I encourage you to check out our Patreon page over at www.patreon.com forward slash headgamespodcast, games spelled G-A-M-S, of course. There's all kinds of exclusive content and perks waiting for you over there, so please go ahead and check us out, and thank you as always for your support. everyone, and welcome to the 15th episode of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb, and here with me as always is Mr. Jonathan Carter. Jonathan, how was your Thanksgiving holiday? We took a week off, so we had time to do our thing, eat lots of, in my case, mostly vegetables and stuffing. In your case, hopefully <laughs> lots of turkey. What'd you do? How was your Thanksgiving? It was really relaxing. My wife and I just stayed home and it was just us and the cats so i had like i think i finally whittled away most of the leftovers because i didn't really have to split them with many people so uh thanksgiving weekend is really just me relaxing eating playing some board games with friends a lot of rejuvenating it was great very cool uh i also it's just my wife and i uh and our dog did some (laughs) cooking lots of cooking actually for two people, it would seem like almost an absurd amount of cooking to do. And yet we finished all the food in two days, including the two pies that I had. So, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So for, for folks who wonder how I, I do all this talk about marathon training, and I do exercise a lot, for folks who wonder how I still manage to have uh, quite a little belly on me, it's due to exploits like that where I go really hard in the pie game. I wouldn't change anything, though. We, we made some really delicious food and had a really nice, relaxing day, much like your own. What does a vegetarian Thanksgiving look like? Uh, so we made some homemade stuffing. Okay. Uh, we had mashed potatoes. We cooked a field roast. And now we've tried these field roasts about three times now, maybe, maybe even four times, because we've been vegetarians for about two years, and we usually do one on Christmas and Thanksgiving. And I always, you know, I take Twitter, I ask my other vegetarian friends, you know, what is the field roast we should be having? And field roast is essentially, you know, a vegetarian substitute for whatever main meat that you usually have. <laughs> right, right. And people are like, I love this one. It's so good. Or you got to try this one. And they are all horrible. And <laughs> I'm not a hater of the vegetarian foods. I love vegetarian replacement foods. I think uh, a lot of the fake meats are very good. They're they're fine replacements. I generally enjoy them. But these field roasts are not doing it for me. So if anyone has like a field roast suggestion that they're just sure is a slam dunk. I've, I've tried the Trader Joe's ones. I don't even remember the brands and the other ones I, I've tried, but I got them from Whole Foods. And they're just not getting the job done. So it, it, to answer your question, it was mostly sides, uh, some vegetables, a lot of pie, like I okay. said, but really good food. And despite the poor performance from the field roast, everything else was spot on. Hopefully a listener can lock in a good recommendation for you in the next like three and a half weeks. And yeah, maybe you can I, try I a good so. one. I hope so. I mean, people, the ones I've tried, people have recommended to me. So I, I guess it's a me thing, which I'm not really picky. Like I said, I like a lot of the other vegetarian replacements, but uh, these are not doing it for me. I'm, I'm not really sure why. Anyway, I also saw you got to put up a vlog over on our Patreon page over this Thanksgiving break, right? Yeah. And what'd you talk about over there? I thought it was appropriate with Thanksgiving being celebrated in America to retouch on practicing gratitude journaling. So there's like a little video, like a show what mine is. I walk through just a reminder of of how I walk through it. It's just a few minute clip, a refresher. Um, I find that we all aren't very good at touching on habits on random days throughout the year, but conveniently we have like these mi- milestones, be it a holiday, new year, whatever it is. And sometimes it's a good reminder for us to like jump back on whatever habit. I talk about this stuff all the time and that doesn't mean that I am always the best at keeping the habits either. So I mean, it was a reminder for me and I figured I would share it with all of our patrons. Very cool. To that note, we've been talking a bit about our Patreon page. And I think both you and I kind of felt like it wasn't quite capturing the spirit of our podcast. Mm -hmm. And it feels strange to have this gated level of commitment that we're instilling on people when really 
this is kind of a labor of love for us and we do it because we legitimately want to help people and we enjoy these discussions and you know that's our purpose here so i want to tell everyone that going forward we're actually just gonna if you're a patreon of our podcast you get all of our content from this point forward anything we put on the patreon page you will have access to regardless of the dollar level of support you give so you folks who have very high contribution levels maybe you want to take this opportunity to decrease that's fine i no objection to that and, you know, maybe you folks who haven't had the chance to come on board the Patreon page, you just felt like there wasn't enough there, enough value. Maybe this is a good time to come check out what we're doing over there. It just feels more in line with our goals, I think, to just say, hey, we appreciate anything you want to do to help us make this podcast, but there's no levels, there's no commitment you should feel bad about. And if you can't support it all, I'm telling you, that's totally fine too. We're just happy you're here, happy you're listening, happy you're improving, hopefully sharing the podcast with your friends, family, loved ones, and just getting the good word of Head Games out there. Yeah, I think it makes it a lot easier for us too. Like we we have these weird struggles that we've found unnecessary about like, oh, well, who gets this content? Who gets this? Like just moving forward, all extra content that is, is for for all patrons. And then of course we have this, this cast that everyone can listen to and we appreciate if you listen, if you if you're a patron, all of the above. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And to that effect, I think we want to keep in the general gratitude Thanksgiving type tradition. And we decided we wanted to do a strange episode for us this week. It's not something we've done before. We just wanted to take questions from every possible source. So we went to our Discord over on the Game Podcast Discord family uh, over on our Head Games channel. We asked contributors there if they had any questions for Jonathan and I. We went to Twitter as well, at Head Games Podcast, and sought out questions there. And so what we have for you are a bunch of questions submitted by our listeners, you people. And Jonathan and I are just going to work through them and talk a little bit and you know, hopefully have some tips for improvement and maybe just share some stories along the way. So let's get right into it. Our first question comes from Matthew Nickel and Joe on Twitter. These are two questions I'm going to read together because I kind of want to combine them into one discussion. Uh, Matthew asks, can you discuss balancing magic and other responsibilities in your life? And this obviously extends to all forms of competition. Uh, I, for one, have a very obsessive personality and struggle with being motivated to do anything except the thing I'm focused on. And Joe over on Twitter asked, what advice would you have for competitors whom are about to be wed or moving in with their significant other? Having to realize your every, every evening at home isn't all about your competition outlets, balancing prep time and time with your significant other. And I think these two questions are very much going hand in hand mm-hmm. for me. And I can only answer this question for my own point of view, and it's going to change for everyone. And that's fine. Everyone has their own priorities. But the way I assess how I'm going to balance my responsibilities is just with hierarchies. I ask myself, what is most important to me? What's going to come first? For me, my significant other, my wife always comes first. I will give up anything if she asked me to. Now, part of that comes from the fact that we have a great deal of respect for each other's pursuits and time. And I know that she wouldn't ask me to give up something I cared about unless it was Mm -hmm. of appropriate importantness to her. And and therefore, I'm able to give up whatever she asked for without hesitation, because I know she wouldn't do something just because, you know, she was a little bored one day and (laughs) she would say, why don't you not go to this pro tour instead? She would never do that. She's very (laughs) cognizant of the things I want to do. So my hierarchy basically comes, you know, her, the rest of my family, my friends, and then I start getting to these pursuits and they're always going to rank below people for me. Uh, That's just how I prioritize. What about you, Jonathan? How do you deal with the pressures of having a wife and having, you know, your hockey pursuits, your magic pursuits, your job as well, you know, all things that kind of battle for attention. Yeah, I think it's similar. I think your use of the word hierarchy makes a lot of sense. Like you just need to figure out what's important to you, what you value. I know you and your wife both have a slew of things that you do together or separate. And I mean, it's similar for us. So like my wife coaches and I don't like hold it against her that she's coaching volleyball and like she doesn't hold it against me that I play magic and she cosplays. So like there that has some crossover. So for us, like we're slowly figuring out that balance. And I'm sure for you, it's like a, a day-to-day thing as well. I think conveniently for <laughs> the four people mentioned, like none of us are 
competitors for our day-to-day living. Mm-hmm. None of the stuff that we're competing in is our main source of livelihood. So I think when you when you go that route, it, perhaps it throws a different wrinkle in it. But I think the same principles apply. And I also think that balance also helps you be more well-rounded and, and probably helps you compete better because you have a support structure and you, like, you don't have added stress because of that. Yeah. And, you know, from my particular very strange lifestyle, making a lot of Magic the Gathering content, writing about magic, podcasting about magic, having that be my main competitive outlet, there's kind of this assumption that, oh, I must be playing PTQs, which are the way you qualify for the Pro Tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must be playing in those all the time and, and trying to get back to the Pro Tour. And the fact is, that's just not super high on my priority level right now. I, I feel like I can make great content without striving to compete on that level. The fact that I've done it before certainly makes me feel a little bit more comfortable stepping away and, and realizing that I don't need to have this in my life to be complete, one, as a person, two, as a magic player. So that's given me a lot of freedom. But it just leaves me with the opportunity to act appropriately giving my given my hierarchy, whereas mm-hmm. I would have to give up a lot of weekends to that pursuit if I had placed magic higher on my hierarchy. Since it's a little bit lower, I just get more time with my wife. And I think that's beneficial to both of us and uh, is more in line with my values than maybe some other paths of performance I could take. Yeah. Two other quick things. For Joe, he talks about like the balancing prep time and time with significant other. I think part of that too that makes it easier is if your prep time is useful, effective, efficient. So Mm. being smart about the times that you do set aside the prep and not just wasting it. And then for Matthew, he talks about uh, having a very obsessive personality and that struggle with being motivated to do something that isn't the competitive endeavor. Honestly, for very, very high level performers in a lot of pursuits like that is a quality that they have there there does require a certain obsession for lack of a a better word with spending a lot of your daily energy committed to your pursuit so like it's not necessarily a bad thing but i imagine you could probably benefit from figure like just taking stock of where is that balance in your life and thinking what else you could be doing to like perhaps alleviate some of that stress I think there's also an elephant in the room and that's potential return, right? Right. If you're obsessive like LeBron James or Kobe Mm -hmm. Bryant about basketball, Mm -hmm. well, you're worth almost a billion dollars. If you're obsessive about magic, there's a lot of magic cards in your house. And that's like not, those aren't the same thing. They are different and you need to realize they're different. That's not to dissuade anyone from pursuing their dreams. And that's not to say your dreams need to be a certain thing because I love the dream of professional magic. There's something about it that very much appeals to me. It's something I've lived at points in my life. And I think it is a noble and worthwhile pursuit. That being said, that has to factor into your kind of hierarchy evaluations. If you're not considering it, you're doing yourself a disservice. Right. So I always try and be conscious of that as well. Yeah. If it's bringing you joy, great. Like keep at it. If it's not, yep. just think about what could be and balance that out. I think that's perfectly said. I think that that's what it really comes down to is what is actually going to make you the happiest. Right. Okay. Let's move on to our next question. This is from Zach Turchansky uh, over on Twitter as well. And they ask, how do you balance needing to take breaks from practice due to tilt, et cetera, with diminishing results in competition because of a lack of practice? So for me, I would want to, instead of worrying about balancing needing to take breaks due to tilt, I would start looking at the issue of tilt. I think that's really the problem here. And if it's coming up so often in your practice that you have to take breaks, that seems really problematic to me. There, there's something going on there that's bigger than the issue of just like your diminishing returns. There's some anger or resentment or, or something that is affecting your relationship with whatever task you're doing. And I think we're going to get to a, a more tilt-focused question in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I, we'll save the deep dive on that when we get there. But I think you're kind of, my answer here is you're mis-evaluating what the actual problem is here. Don't worry about how you balance needing to take breaks from practice due to tilt. Mm -hmm. Worry about addressing your tilt instead. Yeah, I agree. Like 
especially using even the term diminishing results. Like if it's because you are tilting that often that you don't even have time for practice, then as Brian's saying, like probably your biggest performance gain is going to be figuring out and wrestling with what it is that's causing you to tilt and spending your energy there. And that'll likely lead eventually to having more time to practice. Yeah. And why don't we just throw it now to our, yeah. our tilt focus question. Uh, this comes from Brian Sullivan over on Twitter and they ask, what are some good ways to combat tilt? I find myself enjoying the game of magic less when I get hung, hung up on unlucky circumstances. Are there mental exercises either in or out of the game that can help me process this variance in a more healthy way? And Jonathan, I want to hear your take here first. Yeah. And I think Brian's part of the way there, um, they mention getting hung up on unlucky circumstances, which is another way of saying they are focusing a lot on the stuff that they can't control. And it's really easy to get frustrated by uncontrollables if we let ourselves because it's obviously causing some amount of strife and we don't have a way to influence it. And so if we continue to focus on it, we're just kind of spinning our wheels, running into a wall. So another part of this, and I think this goes with our previous question too, is just starting to be aware of what it is that is tilting you. And until I think everyone's familiar with the term, but we're just talking about when you get really caught up in your own brain, start over experiencing negative emotions because of something you can't control, lack of success, et cetera. And then it just kind of spirals into more negative emotion. So yeah, I think part of it is becoming aware of like the situations that cause you to tilt. Is there a a commonality across them? Uh, Is it something really specific? And then a few different ways to go about combating it. Some are really active. Uh, So thinking about what are the types of thoughts you can replace whatever's going on in your head with. So ahead of time, knowing the things you can say to yourself that should get you focused on the stuff you can control sometimes gets us out of that. The other approach is more just mindful acceptance of the fact that our brains suck and they're really good at focusing us on stuff we can't control, stuff that's negative and understanding that negative emotions, negative experiences aren't necessarily bad, but they can be if we just dwell on them and just finding a way to refocus on whatever is happening in the present moment. Oftentimes, that's something you can immediately control. I think those are great approaches. I want to share kind of my own relationship with Tilt and how it's changed over the years. So as a kid... I'm a tilt monster, (laughs) like just an absolute monster. I'm talking like if I struck out in a little league game, I'm throwing my bat and possibly getting thrown out of the game like a monster because I wanted to win so badly and it would manifest in very, uh, very obvious and emotional ways. And fast forward some years and I find myself in poker and I'm, I'm still young at this point, you know, 18, 19 and competing at poker at a fairly high level and quite often berating people who make the wrong play and just completely tilt monster still at some point in my poker career, I found the right piece of literature, the right piece of advice that was like, this is not a useful behavior. You are literally costing yourself money by Mm -hmm. engaging in this type of behavior. And you need to ask yourself if you're here. I, I mean, like basic point was you're, you're here studying this resource, trying to, be better at poker, trying to make more money. And here's this thing you know that engaging in is costing you money and making you worse. So (laughs) why are you doing it? And at that point, it was just like, oh yeah, this is dumb. There's there's no purpose behind this action. And did that completely cure me of Tilt? No. But I will say that my relationship with Tilt now is it's a thing that rears its head, like literally maybe once every two years, And then I can take five minutes and be like, that was really stupid. I don't know why I acted like that. And it it just got the better of me in that moment. But it's not a thing that's occurring daily or every time I play or in every circumstance. Mm -hmm. If that's happening to you, I, I think you're spot on. You're just focusing on the wrong things, especially for our magic players out there. If you're tilting in magic, man, are you missing the big picture? Because there is something you can do in every game of magic you play. 
This may come down to individual decisions in the course of the game, decisions made prior to the tournament. There's always something you can control. And I honestly think this extends to virtually every single form of competition. For sure. There's just always something else you can be doing. And why not engage with something useful where you can say, oh, I could have done this in my process, as opposed to this completely worthless emotional outburst, really, that takes the form of tilt. I mean, it just doesn't do you anything. It's not doing you any good. And if you care about your results, you owe it to yourself to eliminate this from your game. Well, and and I think even there are likely some sports or competitions where maybe it's a one-shot competition on that day or whatever, and you tilt afterwards because you didn't do as well because of something you couldn't control. Maybe it doesn't impact your performance then because it's over but like we were just talking about relationships and life balance like if you're allowing this tilt to then impact how you interact with other people that's also going to have an impact in that that area of your life so it, it does absolutely have tons of performance detriment if in the moment in the performance you're unable to grasp control figure out what it is you can influence or or just change how you're thinking about something but it absolutely pays plays forward outside of games too. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's it's a it's a bigger thing than just in the moment. It's about your life and happiness, and you owe it to yourself to just spend some time thinking about why am I engaging in this behavior? Like you've now identified it. You wrote mm-hmm. this question, right? You you know it's something that's happening. Just ask yourself why. Why are you doing this? You have control over your thoughts. You can wrestle control of them. Is it challenging at times? Yes, absolutely. But it's just practice. Yeah. You just need to practice controlling that instinct. And every time you fu- you feel yourself going down that road, have something else you default to. Have something else you think of. Have something else you analyze and, and use that instead. And I think that'll get you off this really damaging road. Yeah, I've worked with a bunch of MOBA players, be it League, Dota, whatever, that have this experience when they are playing solo queue a teammate that they're randomly paired with will do something stupid and it'll not be good and obviously you can't play for that person but they decide that the best use of their energy is to then storm off in chat and tell this person how bad they are and if you think about Mm -hmm. it like the game doesn't pause so like now you're sitting there typing and you're not doing anything meaningful so then it's affecting the game like very directly and i just find like for those people, like sometimes even just muting the chat, not interacting with other people was like an easy way to start stopping themselves from making interactions that didn't help. Eventually, that taught them to recognize like, hey, I can't control other people. And and the best thing I can do is to like figure out how I can now influence moving forward because we can't rewind and change what happened. So you remember how I mentioned like that once a year event that happens to me in regards to tilt? Yeah. It's almost always with League of Legends. <laughs> almost always. <laughs> like It just comes up all the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, what you're describing is spot on. Uh, anyone who's played MOBA knows the frustration of not being able to account for your teammates. Sometimes incomprehensible actions, but... <laughs> That, that's what the game is. It's yeah. about wrangling these kind of like, it, it's wrangling cats, right? Like five different people who want to do different things right. and you have to somehow get them to work together. That is a skill in and the game. It, it is a real part of the game. Yeah. And you see pros like make a Smurf account, an alternate account, and then they are right. still able to get up to a high rank all on their own. So like, yes, I understand that people suck and they're, they're ruining your rank, but also there are other people who are significantly better than you who despite all odds, still maintain a high level. I, I think poker is a really interesting example too. Like someone will raise pre-flop with a 2-7 offsuit and then you raise on top of them and then li- they like hit the nuts on, on the flop or something. And you're like, oh, how did they go in with like such a crappy hand? Was, you t- took numerous actions after their bet to, to keep yourself in. So like, sure, you can blame them for, you know, keeping a bad hand, so to speak, but like they didn't make you put money into the pot. And let's not forget the fact that your livelihood depends on people making bad plays. Like that's how you make money as a poker <laughs> right. player. So to berate that person for a behavior that's ultimately going to make you money. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the craziest things you could possibly do. So yeah, poker's fascinating when it comes to those type of circumstances, but 
the the mental game of poker is a minefield in and of itself. Maybe sometime we'll dive a little bit deeper into poker specific things because I think they translate really well to other games. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our next question here. Uh, Mike Hudson over on Twitter asks, are there any tips or tricks with finding motivation when you know what you need to do to be successful, but you struggle to take the steps necessary? You kick this one off again, Jonathan. Tips or tr- I don't have any necessarily magical tricks, I, I th- <laughs> but I think this goes back into some conversations we've had in the past. I think part of what makes finding motivation easier is having previously reflected on what it is that motivates you most. So if you have a good sense of what it is that really drives you on the day to day, then in future endeavors, when you're, you're, you know, something's important and you've decided it's a goal or whatever you want to accomplish, like finding ways to then connect whatever that task is to your values, your like, North stars, driving principles, whatever you want to call them. Because I think as this person, as Mike is pointing out, um, like it's the struggles that really test us on that kind of thing. And if we already did the homework ahead of time, it's sometimes a little easier to point to it. First of all, I hope you've listened to our episode exclusively on motivation, episode five. We had a lot to say about the topic. It's certainly going to go more in depth than we will right here. But my big quick tip from that episode was a really stupid sounding simple tip. And that was to just start, just start the task you have to do, like do anything, anything whatsoever, open the word document, create a folder for it and save a blank document, do anything whatsoever, because that can snowball into meaningful progress. And I know that sounds way too simple to work. As someone who struggles with both motivation and procrastination, I see results when I take this approach. I'm telling you, it it makes a difference. Agreed. I like that. Yeah. So just a quick hit there. I'm not going to go too much further, but do go check out episode five where we went very in-depth on motivation. Uh, Our next question comes from Julio Espina. And they ask, is there a way that I can perhaps mentally train myself not to think about real world struggles while in game in hopes not to be affected? Or would it be better to step away from the game if you have baggage to be sorted? (laughs) For me, again, just my own experience, I need to have my other stuff straightened out to commit to a game. And there's a possibility if there's something that is competing for my mental space so aggressively that it's actually distracting me in play that I'm misplacing my priorities by participating in this game. And honestly, that's where this usually arises for me. If I know I should not be playing, I should be working on something, or I should be somewhere with a friend or family, and instead I choose to compete, then this is when this issue pops up. And I think that if you are having these issues, I'm not going to say that there's no value in looking for something that can mitigate them when you're in game because these can pop up in circumstances that are uh you know not necessarily spots where you should step away they could just be intrusive thoughts that aren't actually serving any purpose but i do think when these thoughts are pushing you towards a, a different task or something else you should be doing it's it's worth listening to yourself it's worth listening to your brain and being like should i actually be engaging in this competition right now or should i be handling this other stuff that my brain's trying to direct me towards yeah, the the military, like the U.S. military actually handles this quite deliberately before any soldier de- or any other service member, I'm pretty sure it's outside the army too, um, deploys. Like they are pretty extensive in making sure everything at home is taken care of. So they have ample resources when it comes to finances, their families, like just anything you could think of that could be a nagging thought that is unrelated to their task at hand downrange, which is combat. They try to take care of it before they ever deploy. The logic being like, you don't need bills or your family or some other stressor to be what you're thinking about when you're risking your life. So I think it it, it speaks to like people with high stakes on a daily basis are doing what you're talking about of, of making sure like as Julio or Julio said, like your baggage being sorted. That said, like if you don't have the luxury of being able to 
pause a game or like step away as as you're saying um in the moment I, I think a little bit goes to what we were saying about tilt you can either figure out what it is you can focus on in the moment to try to redirect your focus because like if you tell your brain to block something out it's just going to think of whatever you're telling it to block out but part of this is just like accepting that you're going to clearly have thoughts that are going to drive a lot of negative emotions about whatever these struggles are and just being able to reorient yourself back to whatever you're doing in that moment. And then as soon as you can like step away, like get the the baggage taken care of because it's, it's obviously not going to go away. Yeah. I like the approach of just getting all of your stuff straightened out before you try and engage in any kind of stressful competition. And maybe this is something you, you add some deliberateness to your own life with, mm-hmm. you know, you make a list or, or, you know, I know a lot of people who really, really hype on making their bed because (laughs) it's just like a task you can do every single day and you know it's done and you feel like your stuff's in order and your life's kind of in order. I don't know if I buy that one. Making my bed has never been super important to me, but I do know there's people who this has a positive impact on because they feel like they've started to sort their life and get things going on on the right foot. But yeah, just take some time and think about what more you could be doing to prepare yourself and leave yourself in a good mental state for the times you are about to engage in some competition. Get this stuff off your plate before you even sit down to battle. Yeah. So Juno from Twitter asks, I tend to be a player who gets focused on the current and upcoming turns of a game, but when it's over, I often can't recall how more than a few key turns went. Sometimes I forget whole rounds after four plus. How can I improve on this reflection? And Juno, I think the answer is just practice. Mm-hmm. I would say just make sure after every single game you play, if this is something you care about improving, and you know you wrote this question, so it certainly seems like you do, after every game you play, sit down and make as detailed notes as you possibly can. Just take two to three minutes and put out as much information as you possibly can. Use shorthand. You know, you don't have to be really flowing and descriptive in your explanations, but just try and capture as much of the play-by-play as you possibly can. I guarantee if you commit to doing that after every single game you play, over time, those notes will get more and more detailed. I think that applies to, to anything that you're competing in. I think it also helps you create this living document that informs whatever you're going to practice next so that you're not just practicing randomly. But when we, nice. we've we talked about like setting intention for your, your practice, like just take that right from the notes of the stuff that went well that you want to sustain, the stuff that didn't go well. Another aspect of this, at some point we should talk about memory because I think we can talk about it forever. But like memory is absolutely something you can improve. Um, there's all sorts of techniques and a lot of it I'm sure people have heard of if they've ever had like school skill, like academic skills training, but just like building schema or or patterns that I imagine are common in a lot of instances in whatever game you're playing. And then just like what it does is it condenses the amount of information we need to remember. So similarly, like if you tell someone your phone number, you probably say three digits, then three digits, then four digits if you're in the United States. And it's because we're remembering three chunks instead of 10 chunks. And you can do a similar thing by chunking that data that you're trying to reflect on. Yeah, good approach. I like that a lot. You know, nothing's easy. Everything takes practice. But if you want to improve, the tools are always there. And look into some of these techniques and and just commit to the work and making sure you get better at your recall. So Kyle Vance over on Twitter states, I would like an open discussion on mental health of college-aged people. I think it hits a large demographic of listeners, whether it be anxiety, depression, etc., and how it affects school and work and relationships. I think it could be super beneficial. Keep up the great work. First, thank you, Kyle. We appreciate that. Second, as far as an open discussion, I, I think that's in essence, what our podcast is. It's an open discussion of all aspects of mental preparation and mental stress as well, mental illness. It's something that we want to talk about openly, constantly. You know, I can share my own experiences from college. College was tough. Uh, I mean, it was real tough. I, I was granted all this freedom that I was not probably emotionally mature enough to handle. Uh, I was around a lot of 
substance abuse, uh, as I'm sure many college students are, but my friends and I, we went to bars five, six nights a week, most weeks. Uh, it was just what everyone at my school did at the time, or at least it felt that way. And I'm sure there's actually a pocket of very academically focused students who, who you know, did not engage in that same behavior, but it felt like everyone I knew did. Uh, and we were all kind of living these, these very uh, party intensive lifestyles. And it certainly was a breeding ground for anxiety, depression, because when you're partying all the time, you know, uh, in a lot of instances, grades will slip and it creates this mounting pressure. Funds were always tight in college. You know, coming from my background, I didn't have a large college fund or anything. So I was scraping by on minimal money. All these things were were constantly weighing on me. The good news is that uh, I made it out of college. I eventually graduated. It took me seven years, but we, we got the job done. And kind of the bad news is a lot of those same struggles persisted after college. I, I think that these things are something that literal everyone deals with. I, I mean, I, I'm not discounting the stressors of college age people because they are huge and I, I experienced them myself. But I, I do think these issues persist throughout all walks of life. And that's fine. We all have our struggles. They are overcomable, addressable. You can always take advantage of mental health services offered by your school. I know almost every school has some form of counseling. If you are not comfortable using those, there's certainly other resources available that Jonathan and I have shared on several occasions. It's always good to seek professional help. Uh, it's always good to look at what resources are available. And I would also note too, I think that for a long time, I resisted trying any kind of self-care any kind of mental health help just because I was like, this won't work for me. Like, it's just not going to. But like, what does that actually achieve? Even if I'm right. And a lot of times I was right. There's a lot of services that just, I didn't feel like I garnered any benefit from. But when you find the one that does, doesn't it make dealing with all the ones that maybe aren't hits worth it? Like if you just keep circling through these mental health uh, treatments and, and forms of mental health help, and maybe a lot of them are duds, but maybe one really hits home for you and makes a big difference in your life and can lead you down a positive road and you know a road to reform. What was really the downside of trying those other ones that didn't quite work? What do you have to lose, basically, is my question. I think there's just so much upside in, in seeking self-help and taking care of yourself. Uh, I really encourage everyone to always use the resources available to you. Uh, college age, older, younger, it doesn't matter. Take care of yourself. And I think that's one of the overarching themes of Head Games. Yeah. And I think part of just the college age population that this question is talking about, um, it, it really applies to any population that is experiencing life transition. Because that's really why a lot of the reason we see upticks in anxiety and depression around college students, like it's your likely your first time, perhaps away from home, uh, increased independence, handling your own schedule, handling your own academics. Teachers aren't walking you through things. We see the same thing when people stop being athletes and they go to being a regular person or like you retire from a job and go into another one or you just change jobs. Like transition is one of those life events that creates a lot of uncertainty. And as we experience uncertainty, that often makes us have thoughts that interpret it in a way that like something bad's going to happen to us. And, and those types of thoughts make us feel anxious and make us feel agitated. And so that's why we experience a lot of that. And so I, I think to what Brian is saying about being open with it, finding people you can talk to, having a support structure, practicing good self-care in general helps with that. And I think in general, we're moving towards a society that that is more open with that, at least than when I was in college. And yeah, like just be okay reaching out, which like clearly even just making this tweet about it is, is pretty public. And I think the more you interact with other people who have that same mindset, like it just gives you that support structure. Yeah, great point. Great point. And you can find like-minded people out there. You know, I talked about my own bubble where it felt like everyone around me was engaging in kind of self-destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. And that was probably true. But if I wanted to escape that, there was other groups. There was, there was an other way of life available to me. 
You know, it was funny when you were talking about how times of transition can be the biggest points of stress. I actually don't know how old you are, Jonathan, but I am of the age where I literally had to stop and think about how old I am because it's becoming <laughs> difficult to keep track of. I think I, I think you have like two years on me. Yeah. So I'm 36. And honestly, it feels like I have always, always, always been in that state of transition <laughs> yeah. my entire life, basically. I mean, it, it never really feels like it settles down, but that's good in a lot of ways too. It's exciting. And, and again, that's not to downplay what you're saying. I, I think you're spot on. It causes a lot of stress, but stress kind of goes hand in hand with excitement and opportunity in a yeah. lot of instances. And being comfortable is not always the best way to get ahead. Sometimes you need to make yourself uncomfortable to to be able to achieve new things and accomplish new new goals. I will say that I don't feel like I've escaped that transition phase at any point in my life, uh, but I'm not sure I want to either. I, I think it keeps things exciting and interesting, and I don't really want to settle down into a more routine approach. Yeah, and I don't think many people do. Like There are life stress inventories out there that I, I'm sure you could Google, but on them, like you stress is, is part of it too. So like I've been married for just over two years now, like becoming married, like is a transition is a stressor. One of our earlier questions, mm -hmm. just asking about like moving in with a significant other, having a kid, starting a new job, just making, even just making life changes of I'm starting to go to the gym and take care of my health. Now, if someone decides to do that, like these are all transitions that are often generating thoughts of uncertainty. And that's where we get all of these emotions springing up. So like, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it's something that ever really stops. The other rule of head games, life is hard, <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, that's, it's just something we all go through and it's, it's good to be reminded of the fact that everyone's life is hard, mm -hmm. right? Like we all have these struggles that we go through and it just speaks in favor of seeking help and, and never having any shame about it or any doubts that it's the right thing to do. If you take nothing else from this podcast, please take that away. Yeah. Everyone's unique, but like there's also someone out there who's gone through what you're going through or at least something similar to it. Spot on. Uh, our next question comes from Liam Callahan and Liam asks, sometimes I have trouble quieting my thoughts in her dialogue. Do you have any advice for switching off? And quite frankly, I don't. This is something I have a lot of issues <laughs> with too. The only thing I have for you, Liam, is... We talked about grounding exercises in past episodes, and grounding is, mm. you know, identifying senses that are occurring to you in the moment. So uh, things you see, things things you can taste, things you can smell, things you can uh, touch, and that helps me at times quiet my thoughts. As far as anything better than that, I, I'm sorry, I just don't have anything. This is something I've dealt with my whole life, and uh, <laughs> there's no magic bullet here. Sometimes it's worse than others. Sometimes I can uh, find a little piece, but other times I, my inner dialogue is just going all the time. I will say one thing that I, I hesitate to bring it up because it's so different for so many people, but I want to talk about it anyway because yeah, it, it actually it. did help this a lot. As, as far as I'm concerned. So I used to smoke a lot of weed, uh, as I'm sure many people currently listening either do or did or maybe are planning to. I don't know. But, uh, but this really exasperated my inner dialogue and thoughts. And I actually completely abstain at this point. And, you know, I, I'm not really trying to have that discussion. I think it has uh, some benefits, some downsides, and ultimately that's a decision you have to make for yourself. But me personally, that was a problem for me as far as really intensifying my inner dialogue and really kind of drawing me inwards. So that was a huge part of the reason I stopped. Uh, and overall, I'm happy I did. So that's just my two cents. Not giving a hard stance there, but just wanted to share my own experience. Yeah, like switching it off is I think harder for some people than others. We all have very active brains. And so, yeah, some of the things you were talking about, I think can work. Part of it goes to like, what is the inner dialogue? Like, is it just a distractor or is it something that's just actively generating ineffective thoughts and effective emotion? So like part of it is an attention thing. So like, is Liam talking about just the thoughts are getting in the way of focusing on the task at hand or is it the the thoughts are generating like more emotions that are worse 
So I agree that like grounding, as you were describing it, I think is is one method that helps us regain present focus. I think part of it too is just practicing outside of a competition. So meditation, yoga for our weekly required reference, like all of these behaviors that that teach you to just focus on present moment outside of a pressure situation, sometimes train our brain to be able to do that. I think switching it off is not something we can do that requires like that, that implies that we're taking an action to stop our thoughts from happening. And that's just simply not going to happen. But what we can do is shift our thoughts to something that's more useful. And my approach to that and, and how I tend to recommend it is just thinking about like, what is it that you can control right now? What can I influence right now? Or even just some form of awareness of what's going on. Like, are you sitting in a chair? Like, how does your butt feel in, in the seat? Like, okay, now we're thinking about that. We're, we're like grounded to where we are right now. Let's go back to what we're doing. Uh, it all comes back to useful behaviors, right? Like it's something we loop back to over and over on the cast. It's just finding a more useful thing to be doing and realizing that you're not getting anything from having a persistent running dialogue and looking for other things to focus on. Uh, yeah. It's certainly challenging. Jonathan, let me ask you a question. Did I did I make myself sound really old and uncool when I called it weed? Do people still call it weed? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're also really old so and uncool. Same, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. At least I'm not alone. That's all I care about. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Adam Hernandez, who wants to know what's a good guideline for the difference between arrogance and confidence. If you think back to our weakness show, this is something that I identified as one of my own struggles and, and something I had a really hard time kind of figuring out. But I thought about this a lot pre-show and I came up with this approach. Jonathan, let me know what you think of this because I literally okay. just made this up and I don't know if it's actually worthwhile. But here's what I suggest. Think about the thing you're about to say. Then think about someone you really dislike saying the same thing. If your response would be to roll your eyes at that person, then you've crossed the line to arrogance from confidence. Hmm. What do you think about that for identifying statements you might want to make? I think that does work for identifying arrogance. I'm going to say that they can both exist together and necessarily okay. don't have to. So I, th I agree that like, so your, your question there, like, it, you're rolling your eyes because that person is just being outward. Like arrogance to me is outward behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that anyone has a positive association with arrogance. So I, I'm going to just say that arrogance is something is perceived. It, it's always perceived negatively. Um, but confidence, I think, is the internal certainty we have to to be able to do something. And there are very confident people who are cool, calm, and collected. You can't tell that they're confident. They just, they just are. Uh, and like, they don't show you that externally. They're also really confident people that you know are confident and mm -hmm. maybe they're even arrogant about it, but like, they're not faking it. They, they are actually confident. And then we have the people who are outwardly arrogant and they are actually not confident at all in their head. And I think we talked about some stories uh, on a previous cast of that. So I think you can have imposter. Syndrome, right. Like yeah. you can have one or the other, you can have both. Like we have, like, I'm sure most people can think of high level performers that are absolutely outwardly confident to a point that comes off as arrogance. Like Muhammad Ali to me is consistently my example of like, he trash talked like better than anyone. And he absolutely like, <laughs> If you were to put what he was saying in into the like like as you were saying the mouth of someone you don't like like yeah you probably roll your eyes but the guy was definitely confident that he was going to win any match he entered so he had both and I, and I think we've seen every combination of the two yeah I kind of like your distinction of I, I don't know if this is quite what you were saying but this is how I interpreted it as confidence being internal and arrogance being external. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good marker. And if you are concerned about addressing your own potential arrogance or perceived arrogance, whether you feel that way or you're just concerned about people perceiving you that way, just fall back on quiet confidence, right? 
like let your actions speak for you. Let your actions speak louder than your words, honestly. And, you know, don't tell people how good you are. Show them how good you are. Yeah. And I, I think if you're defaulting to that mode of operation, you really can't go wrong. Right. Slight tweaks. I think we can, in, in what I said, and, and you interpreted what I said correctly, but like slight change. I think we can be perceived as confident externally. And it's like internally, there's this dial of I'm not confident to I'm 100% confident. And then externally, it's like, okay, this person doesn't look confident at all. Okay, they look confident to, whoa, they are way overconfident and arrogant. And like once become arrogant, like that's that negative interpretation. But we definitely see people who we know are good at what they do and they give that, use like cool and calm demeanor. Like we can definitely see confidence, but then there's this like tipping point of no, 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 that that's arrogant and people are rolling their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's go to our next question from Stephen Wu, who asks, how do you stay mentally and physically warmed up throughout a long competition, uh, especially if you have some kind of lull in that competition? Mm. I'm going to just throw this one completely to you, Jonathan. I want to hear your your tips for mental and physical warmups. And, and I think physical probably goes to, it depends what you're doing, right? I, I mean, sometimes there's more requirement to stay uh, limber, loose. Other times it's it's less about uh, having the capability to do a specific task and more just about like general fitness, good aerobic exercise, keeping blood flow up. So mm-hmm. like just like walking around and things like that. So why don't we focus more on the the mental side of things here? How, what do you do for mental warmups throughout a long competition? Yeah, this is a good question. And we had another one, someone asked something like how to maintain a high level of focus for long periods of time. I, I think this is a similar question. It feels like a cop-out answer, but uh, finding when you don't have to be on, I think is like the probably biggest way to gain dividends. I I think what people struggle with sometimes is they're constantly activated, constantly alert, and that especially over a long competition, be it day long, multiple days, like if you are always turned your dial like of energy usage is like all the way up, like you're going to get burned out. So I think it's about figuring out when do I have breaks and then maximizing the use of those breaks. So like if you're in a mental competition, like turn your brain off, go for a walk, do something physical, but like quiet your mind, listen to music, whatever it is to just stop using your brain as much. And then the important part is then figuring out like, okay, now that it's time to perform again, how do I dial it back up just in time to get going? And so I think people who are good at staying mentally and physically warmed up through long competition are able to quickly turn that dial like close to zero and then close to whatever it needs to be for a performance. And they do that throughout the day, throughout the week, whatever it is constantly just to like maximize the amount of energy they do wake up with. I really like having a physical trigger for turning Mm. on your mental awareness. And I honestly think the best one is one, close your eyes, two, take one deep, huge breath, three, start your task. Mm. And I think if you default to that every time and you begin to know, okay, this is my action I do before I now enter enter my mental on state, my mental competition state, I, I think you'd be surprised at how efficient that task can get you into that kind of zone, that high performance zone. Um, I, I've seen people do far more dramatic things. There's a magic player who famously slaps himself <laughs> yeah. in the face prior to playing a match. Yeah. If that works for him, great. I mean, ultimately, it's about finding this way to get yourself into this zone. And this is what he thinks works. I think there's probably a less dramatic way to do mm-hmm. so. And I would encourage starting with a deep breath before you go straight to slaps. But maybe you'll find slaps work for you, too. Who knows? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe that'll be your approach. Uh, experiment, figure out what works personally for you. Breathing's a, a a good idea to bring up. Like with it, like my warning or asterisk is like I've seen other people who talk about performance tips like go way off the deep end into breathing. So, so my suggestions with it are like there's a lot of research support that practicing deliberate breathing and it becoming a learned behavior uh, have oodles of performance benefits and and recovery benefits 
But where I see it go into the realm of something I don't recommend is I've, I've read some things where people recommend like actively during a competition, expelling like mental power to like count your breath and think about how you're breathing. Like that is not a good use of time. We're talking about practicing this before you're even on game day so that it becomes a bit more automatic. But in your downtime, absolutely there's benefit to finding time to sit down have like a a deep rhythmic breath utilizing your diaphragm like that's going to pull you out of all those effects of fight or flight it's going to allow you to sustain a bit more energy because you're going to enter this pseudo restorative state where like you are being really efficient with keeping your energy and then i guess brian's saying like before you get into a competition figuring out like what is your routine to then get yourself back to where you need to be for what you're about to do What's, what's the yoga term, like Ajayi breath or something mm-hmm. along those lines? Thanks, Yoga with Adrian, for that <laughs> tidbit as well. Uh, yeah, just some, some form of breathing is certainly positive. I, I agree with you. It seems like in competition, counting my breaths, not something I generally have the uh, mental space or time for. I do like all these changes. It's important that if you decide this is something you want to add to your game, it has to be a process. It's not something that's going to yield dividends and get you in a mental flow state immediately uh, on first try, but it's something you can build into your game over time and you might find some surprising results there. All right, I next want to throw to Mr. K's question and I'm going to keep this answer short and sweet. I don't think there's much to say about <laughs> it. Mr. K wants to know, is 31 too old to start a Magic the Gathering pro career? Concerns with Magic the Gathering pro careers aside, we'll throw those out the window for a second. You are not too old to do anything you want to do. If you are willing to uh, work hard enough, if you are willing to accept your limitations, which I I do think is important, like I probably can't go be an NFL player at this point in my life. That's not realistic. Mm -hmm. But you know, within reason, if you care about something enough and you want to do it, don't ever feel like you're too old to at least attempt it. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. You know, I was old when I started law school. I was one of the older people in my class. I started at 28, I think, and graduated at 31 when I certainly, you know, there is people in my graduating class who were, I believe, 22 was maybe the youngest person. Hmm. They were accelerated for sure, but, you know, very, very young. So there, there can be a broad age range and disqualifying yourself based on age just seems silly to me and not to <laughs> spout idioms all over the place, but age is just a number. It's really about what you're capable of, how you feel. And I would just get rid of any kind of notions that you're too old to do anything that you actively care about. Agreed. Okay. That's all that has to be said. <laughs> so our final question is going to come from Joey Keto Commander Sprouse. I'm assuming Joey is engaged in the ketogenic diet currently. Uh, but they ask, being new to this winter slash northern thing, how do you deal with it suddenly being miserable to be outside <laughs> and it being dark so early? I was so motivated in the summer, but winter seems to drag me down. This is another one where I don't feel <laughs> like I have a good answer for you seasonal affective disorder yeah. i believe is is what it's called and i Correct. 100% suffer from it there's a lot of good mental health resources to help you deal with this it's certainly mm-hmm. something that i would say talk to a professional about I, I think they are way more inclined to be able to offer help than i am all i can say is that i go through it i know what you're feeling Honestly, since I moved to Seattle about six months ago, we've had probably the best weather I've ever experienced in my life over that six months. (laughs) The last three days, though, have been just raining nonstop. And I have had to take my runs in the rain, and they've been wet and miserable, and I've come back soaked and cold. But I know I have to do it as part of my training, and I am not getting the same joy out of my runs that I was just a week ago. But I just have to struggle through. And I, I talked a little bit, I think probably about two episodes ago that I had gotten one of those light therapy lamps. Mm-hmm. I honestly saw no results or improvement uh, whatsoever. So I was, I was I, expecting some magical answer. No, no, no <laughs> miracles here. I, I mean, I'm not saying don't try it. I, if you would like to you know, see for yourself, please feel free. For me, I did not notice a difference. So I, I'm sorry I didn't find an, an instant cure for you there. But I, I do think that as in a lot of cases, just speaking with a professional is probably the best approach here if you find it really having a dramatic impact on your mood and productivity. 
Yeah, and see if anyone else near you is also moved. Like, I'm pretty sure Joey is like from Florida and moved to the Northeast. I don't know what that difference is like. Uh, I grew up in the Northeast and I enjoy the cold. But step one, just like get a nice jacket. But then <laughs> on a more serious note, yeah, exactly what Brian's saying. Just seek out some resources near you. This is not an uncommon occurrence. Tons of people are affected by the seasons, by the stupid daylight savings and what it does to light and dark. And in terms of the motivation, like Brian alluded to it in his own performance, like he's still running because the the goal of him running a marathon is important to him. So like we talked about with an earlier answer, just figure it out in terms of what drives you and just see how you can tap into that. And hopefully it's something besides 85 degree weather. Somehow, once more here on the Head Games Podcast, we have gotten back to weather talk, the hallmark of any good podcast. So I hope you will come back next week to join us as we discuss sun, (laughs) snow, maybe. Maybe there'll be ice. Who knows? But check in next week when we come back to play some more Head Games. Head Games.